Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Here with me, as always, is my good friend, Mr. Jonathan Carter. Welcome to the start of November, Jonathan. We are we are here at a new month. Do you do any of the, the no-shave November stuff? Are you one of those? <laughs> are you one of those guys? Not deliberately. I, I don't think I ever really <laughs> shave. Uh, so I, I think the whole thing is you're supposed to shave your whatever you have off at the beginning of the month. And I always have a pretty massive beard. And for me, I've done that before in winter. And the windshield that a big beard provides is very missed. So no, I don't really do it. But I'll like still at the end of the month have more than what most people get throughout November. <laughs> Right. I kind of lived the no shave lifestyle for the most part. You know, we'll we'll trim the beard up every now and then. Right. I think you you go full aggressive beard. You're you're harder into the bearded arts than I am. But uh yeah, I I tend to not participate in no shave November just cuz I'm already there. I I mean, I have no yeah. objection to it. I like having, you know, other people participate in the beard growing extravaganza in the month. It feels like I have some uh comrades in arms, so that's always mm-hmm. good to see. But anyway, enough about shaving. Why do we start with the oddest topics every week? Sometimes we talk weather. Sometimes <laughs> we talk shaving. Yeah. Probably my fault. I'll turn the lens inward there. <laughs> but we are back now after a week off. You and I, we traveled to some competition this past week. We went to a Magic the Gathering tournament out in New Jersey. Uh, I flew in from Seattle. I believe you drove in from D.C., right? D.C. area. I lucked out. I went up via train like a few days early because I have some friends in New York and then my lovely wife drove up Friday and we took the car back but it was like a cheap uh, train ticket I saw it ahead of time and like had the opportunity to be back in New York so I took advantage of it very nice I enjoy train travel it's definitely pretty pleasant so you got to kind of get out into the public a little bit I I think this is kind of your first big Magic the Gathering tournament since we started doing this podcast. And now people know who you are a little bit. And did you get the opportunity to meet or discuss head games with any of the fans of the podcast? Yeah, a bunch. There are numerous times, I think, for both of us where we would be sitting around talking after a match. And then, like, slowly you would look around and this bigger and bigger conglomerate of people would be around. So those moments are cool. But then, even just in passing or like uh, a player playing next to me would hear me introduce myself to my opponent or they would see the match slip that has Jonathan Carter on it and then they would see the like game sleeves and uh, on the cards and they'd like put two and two together. It was neat. Yeah, it's a cool experience when uh, you get to meet people who are enjoying your work. I always appreciate it. Never take it for granted. Uh, the fact that people listen to us on a week-to-week basis and then we get the chance to meet them and they tell us that they appreciate the cast, that that means the world to me. So I, mm-hmm. I always appreciate being out at big tournaments like that. Uh, neither of us did particularly well in the <laughs> tournament. Yeah, we did as well as possible without day twoing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we both missed uh, our, our winning in rounds for day two. But I had a great time. It, it was a great tournament. A lot of traveling, but you know, that comes with the territory. And I got to go see some friends and family up on the East Coast. So that was always good. I'm, I'm curious for you. So like you've casted magic about magic for a while now. So aside from that part, now that you are part of a podcast about the mental side of competition, do you find any added pressure while you're playing and people recognize you to like keep your cool or, or like not tilt or anything like that? Well, I, I actually had a really interesting situation along those lines. And I guess I'll talk about it here. I didn't talk about it over on our other cast, but I don't want to give too many specifics because I don't want to I don't have my opponent's consent to talk about it, so I don't want to give their side of the story Mm -hmm. inaccurately or anything like that. But basically, I was in a spot in the tournament where 
judges found out there was something wrong with my opponent's deck. And it looked like my opponent was going to get a game loss in a very crucial spot. And I, I was very far behind in the game we were playing, but still had a chance at winning. Mm-hmm. And my opponent kind of, he didn't, he wasn't responsible for the reason he was going to get the game loss. It was kind of something outside of his control. He didn't do anything mm-hmm. malicious, but there's, you know, rules to protect tournament integrity. And it seemed like right. he was going to run afoul of them. And he basically begged me to concede to him to give up the match because like it, like I said, it looked like he was really far ahead. Uh, he certainly was favored in the match, had a very good chance of winning. And it seemed like he was going to get a penalty at that stage and have the match taken away from him. And honestly, me still being in the game, I, I can't really justify conceding in that spot. I, I flew across the country to play this tournament. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense to just give up because there was a mistake on his side of the table, regardless of whether it was malicious or his fault. It, it didn't seem fair to me, but I did have to think about like, well, how does this actually, how is this going to be portrayed? You know, is this person going to take to Twitter and uh, <laughs> bash my competitive approach when I'm here doing a podcast about being a good competitor, uh, uh, about being balanced? I had to really check in with myself, make sure I wasn't letting my desire to succeed kind of overwhelm my morals and that I was comfortable with taking the stance that I was not going to concede, even though I was behind. And honestly, if I was completely dead, I do concede. But the fact that I still had a chance to win the game, I was morally Mm -hmm. comfortable with not conceding in that spot. That was really the one instance of having to consider my position as like a podcaster about the competitive side of (laughs) of the game and, and, and how yeah. we approach, you know, competitive integrity and things like that. And uh, yeah, that's the only time I really saw myself tested. But in general, basically, I, I've worked really hard over the years at just trying to be a pleasant opponent and trying to maintain yeah. my composure. And so it's not really built around this podcast, but it is certainly something I consider an important part of my game. So uh, enough tournament talk. Maybe we'd, we'd extend it a little longer if we had great tournaments and we'd be giving all these <laughs> stories about how we triumphantly applied all the lessons of head games. Yeah, uh, hey, we still had fun despite yeah, yeah. our lack of success. Oh, yeah, so that, absolutely. That's, that's applying our lessons. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. But let's transition to our topic this week. And, and this is a topic that we've kind of had in our holster for a little while now and one that I'm pretty excited to talk about. I really want to see what you're bringing to the table this week. Essentially, I tasked you with looking at some uh, studies, some research in your field that really captured your attention, that you found really interesting, uh, you thought contained enlightening facts that our listeners would love to hear and that I would love to hear. And I know you have done that. You have identified some studies, some research that you want to share with us today. And let's just get to it. I want to hear what you got for us. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand the reins to you. Guide us through some interesting studies you found over the past week. Sure. So last cast, we were talking about our strengths. And I talked about how I'm a generally optimistic person and I leverage that in a lot of situations. And so that had me thinking about a lot of the research that goes into optimism. And it's a topic that is really widely studied at this point. Um, But there's a lot of cool stuff, at least cool for me, hopefully cool for everyone, um, that that people have studied in it. So, they take a look at, like generally the, the theme across studies is they'll look at a group of people, they'll rate whether or not they have on average more optimistic thinking or pessimistic thinking, and then they'll track them for some time and see if there's differences. I think some of the coolest ones are around cardiovascular health. So for example, there was one study where they took a lot they took a look at like over 300 middle-aged patients who were scheduled to have coronary artery bypass surgery, which I believe is where they like change out an artery connected to your heart. Does that sound right? That sounds right. I mean, obviously, I'm not a medical doctor. It's like a a really serious surgery. Yes, that sounds correct to me. You've got a general uh, gist of what the process is like. So, they like gave them a psyche valve. They looked at like their level of optimism, depression, how their like self-esteem was. And then they tracked them for six months afterwards. And they found that the people who trended to have more optimistic thinking were half as likely as the pessimistic thinkers to be rehospitalized. 
Wow. So actual physical results from their optimism. Yes. And, and like over those six months, pessimists were like three times more likely than the optimistic thinkers to have either a heart attack or require like a, another serious cardiovascular procedure. Now, obviously, I, I think the assumption is that it's not the optimism itself having this dramatic effect on the outcome and the success of their surgery, but kind of the behaviors that optimism leads to. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and that's what I take from it. It's not just like the the belief that you control things or you see better stuff in the world. But like if we just walk through it practically, imagine you're one of these people, you walk in, you're scheduled for your coronary artery bypass and you go through it and you come through and like the doctor gives you the results and they're just like, well, hey, Brian, like that's a really difficult surgery and you're fine now, but like, let's talk about the future. How do you imagine an optimist like going about that? Like, what are they thinking? What are the behaviors they take? Yeah. I mean, an optimist is thinking about uh, how am I recovering from this? You know, what tasks am I going to do to get me back to where I was before? Because I'm going to find a way to do it. There, nothing's going to stop me. I've overcome harder in my life. I'm going to overcome this tri- th- this obstacle and triumph over it. I mean, we've all heard these kind of statements. You know, I don't know if we have a lot of wrestling fans that listen to our podcast, but I think to uh, the WWE champion was just diagnosed with leukemia for the second time. This incredible athlete who's like this tremendously strong, you know, big guy is now facing this crucible for the second time. And Basically, his approach is that I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to tackle it. And I'm sure we've all seen this, you know, in in our own lives too. People who have that kind of insatiable desire to recover, which I link very directly with optimism for sure. Right. Like, so the the wrestler you're talking about likely notices that he can control his diet. He can find specialized doctors, take the right medicine, sleep well, recover well. Like, do all of these things that are absolutely controllable. And I imagine across patients of leukemia, like the people who overcome it once or even more than that are taking those, like making those healthy lifestyle choices. Right, right. And you're only motivated to take those choices if you believe in your capacity for recovery. If you Mm -hmm. have defeated yourself already and say, this is going to get me, then you're probably giving up in all your actionable items as well. Yeah. And so for these patients who had that first procedure, the optimism was like a protective factor afterwards too. Instead of like, I imagine the the people who had more pessimistic thinking probably thought like, well, that happened once. Uh, It's probably going to happen again don't really know what I'm going to do about it. So let me just live life and eat a ton of red meat and smoke a bunch and drink a bunch and just let quote unquote fate decide. And that's probably part of why they had a repeat heart attack or a repeat procedure or anything along those lines. Mm. This springs to mind as a second question. And I don't know if you're going to have this data in front of you, but I feel like it's something I've seen in passing before. I'm not a religious person. Let me preface preface this discussion by saying that mm-hmm. uh, I certainly respect people's you know involvement with religion. It's it's just not for me. Uh, if that's your thing, more power to you. But I do have a basis to believe that prayer is probably a very powerful thing for these reasons. I mean, when I I believe that people benefit from prayer because it's a source of optimism and a source of mm-hmm. belief and something they can lean on in these times. I mean, does this study kind of touch on that to any degree? Or can you think of other studies that maybe have explored the, the link between prayer and optimism and prayer and recovery and things like that? Yeah, I don't think this went into it. Uh, I can't think of a, a similar study that does. But I, I think what you're saying is true. I, I think part of it is prayer tends to center around some amount of gratitude. And we've talked in the past, the the benefits of gratitude, gratitude and optimism are often very linked. So yeah, I think what you're saying makes sense that engaging in prayer, the practice of gratitude to some sense does build the same type of roads in our brain, the neural pathways to like see more 
controllability or just mm. possibility in situations. It's interesting because in, in some aspects, you're kind of seeding control in a lot of instances yeah. of prayer, right? But at the same time, I see what you're saying where you're like acknowledging things and believing in a path forward and the two kind of contrast with each other. But it's it's interesting and it just goes to show how like whether you subscribe to a belief system or a theory, there's probably something you can take away from all of these modes of practice, all these modes of belief uh, and integrate into your own life regardless of what your broader tenets may be, regardless of what uh, your faith may be. I think there's aspects of positivity in all these mm -hmm. modes of religion. And I really like that. I, I remember uh, I had a friend of mine tell me he, he, he had just had a young son and he was bringing his son to an interfaith church, which was just, you know, basically every possible religious denomination was there. And the church services hinged on the belief systems of all of them and discussed all of them. I thought that was a really cool thing, uh, hmm. a really cool approach to being able to take something away from religion that works for you. Yeah, I, I think the other part, like you mentioned, the controllability, sure, there might be some aspect that's giving that up, but you are also saying that you are going to like control your actions to live by certain tenets mm -hmm. of, of whatever it is that you're practicing. So like maybe it's that control that is a form of optimism. Right, right. Interesting. I, yeah, I, I don't know that I have like a hard lesson to take away from the involvement of religion with this, but it, it just crossed my mind. Yeah, like I, it is I interesting. Think, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two. Yeah. And so there's been a couple studies around cardiovascular health and optimism. There's another one. It was from like Harvard and Boston university. They had people from each in it and they looked at, it's like over a thousand men, average age, early sixties. And they again had them, be evaluated for whether or not how they explain the world tends to be more optimistic or pessimistic. And then they took a look at all sorts of health factors, so like blood pressure, cholesterol, whether they were obese, if they smoked, if they drank alcohol, if they had a history of heart disease in the family. None of them had been previously diagnosed with any type of heart disease when the study started and they watched them for 10 years. And again, the most pessimistic men in the group were more than twice as likely to develop some form of heart disease, even after controlling for all of those other risk factors that they took a look at. Mm. It's so hard for me to, to understand exactly what is being shown here, just because my instinct is always to be like, okay, this pessimism or lack thereof is the key to everything. It unlocks so mm -hmm. much of your personality. And I'm thinking about what, is, what does stress do to a pessimistic person? So much right. of stress is born of pessimism. And, you know, I know my own experiences with stress are born of, oh, I'm going to fail at this task or, oh, they're going to find out I'm an imposter. There's a little callback <laughs> to, an, to an earlier episode. But yeah, a lot of the stressors in our life are born of pessimism. And I wonder, again, how much those two factors are, you know, crossing each other and kind of inextricable from one another. They're, they're very much linked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I found interesting about this, because when I first started like learning these types of effects of optimism, like the, the skeptical part of me was like, well, healthy people are probably just happier or like it's, it's easy to be optimistic yeah. if you're already healthy. That's kind of what I'm doing now, right? Yeah. But I mean, like in this, in this Harvard study, they like everyone, no one had had health problems in terms of like their, their heart disease. So like they were all heart healthy, so to speak. And so they, they controlled for that because you would think like, all right, I'm already feeling great. So it's pretty easy to be happy yeah. and healthy, yeah. but like a chicken or egg type thing, but that's not what they find. So even more reason, like for all we've talked about in terms of optimism or finding what you can control in a situation, like their dramatic health benefits. I, I don't know the specific studies, but I'm sure you've heard optimistic thinkers have, you know, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, extra like years on their life. Uh, they have like different numbers in everyone I've heard. And I don't know what the specific number it, it gives you or if, even if we found out like this is the exact number of days or years that being more optimistic gives you. But like even if it's a day, isn't that pretty cool? Yeah. No, it, it really is. And, and isn't it worth it too? Like isn't right. it worth it to try and 
integrate optimism into your life. And, you know, we've talked about techniques for doing that in the past, be it gratitude journaling or, you know, many of the other uh, exercises we've gone through. And, you know, here's some more hard support for your stance. So very cool to see. Yeah. Some other quick hits in optimism that are a little more performance focused. They found that whether or not a college bound senior was more optimistic or pessimistic was a better predictor of college success than GPA, SAT, like any other metric that they actually choose whether or not you get to attend their university. That is <laughs> incredible. But, but like, wow. think about when you were in college, like why might that make sense that the optimistic thinkers are more successful? Well, if you believe you're going to succeed, you're probably taking the steps to succeed and, you know, refusing to fail and things like that and attending class. I mean, <laughs> when I wasn't going to class, uh, I wouldn't say I was overflowing with optimism. I was generally a pretty down person. My interests were certainly elsewhere besides school. And, you know, if, if I was attending class, I was doing well, but that was always my battle. So when when I was defeatist, and what does it matter if I go to college? It's, I'm never going to use this anyway. I don't see a career path forward. May as well not attend class and you know just party. No, it's very easy to see why a GPA goes down with that kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. I think about it in terms of students experiencing probably some of their first failure too, or at least if you fail before college or you're just not as successful in a class, like the teacher tends to just jump in and they call your guardians and they like they intervene. Whereas right. you get to college, like it's all on you. <laughs> oh, you can free fall. You can, you can do a complete collapse yeah. if you want to and no one's going to know about it. They already got your check. So yeah. Like, if you don't show up to class or like, let's say you are showing up to class and you encounter a difficult class and you're not doing well, it is on you as a college student to figure out what resources you can tap into. And so an optimistic thinker f- is is better at finding those aspects of control. Whereas a pessimistic thinker probably thinks like, well, I failed, like this class is hard, this teacher hates me, I'm not made for college, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. It all just comes back to finding the things you can control. There's so many situations that can beat us up in our day-to-day life and focusing on the things that you can actually manipulate and and have some influence over is always going to pay way more dividends than thinking about uh, outside opinions or convincing yourself that the system is stacked against you. It, it's just about finding ways to improve yourself, to give yourself better chances at success. Mm-hmm. So that's optimism. Uh, Some other cool stuff that I like nerding out about uh, comes down to like how our energy influences how well we perform. And so we've talked about sleep, but beyond that, I'm talking game day or whatever it is you do. There's this concept called the individual zone of optimal functioning, which to break it down quite simply, it's just we each have an ideal level of energy that makes us perform at our best for whatever it is we're doing. So like me running versus you running, me running versus me studying. And if we can figure out what that is, we tend to perform better. That seems hard, right? Like energy is such a nebulous concept to seize upon. Like a lot of times when I'm going out for a run, I can't tell you where my energy level is at until I'm two miles, three miles in. And that's yeah. where things, I, I mean, a, a lot of runs I start, I, f- I feel like I start from a place of low energy and it's actually my run that inspires energy in me and and, and gets me motivated and, and lets me tap into whatever stores of energy I have. So I'm curious how they were identifying their like optimal energy levels in these instances. Yeah, you're right. I think nebulous is a good word for it. Um, what they tend to do, uh, they being, his name's Yuri Hannon. He goes, he's from Javascula, Finland, if anyone wants to look up his stuff. But they'll have athletes fill out a questionnaire where they self-assess, think of a performance or whatever it is your sport is, your competition is. When you're at your best, how do you describe yourself? So what are some emotions that you tie to it? Are you feeling joyful? Are you agitated? Anywhere around the spectrum of emotions, as well as like, where's your focus? Are you honed in? Are things automatic? Are you thinking about like strategy instead of 
execution. And then they also have you do that for your not as good or your worst performances. And they create this profile of where your mood is at and try to help performers think about for a given performance or a given task, like what cocktail of emotions gets you to be at that right energy level. Wow. Is is, is there something that can lead people to doing this on their own? I mean, this seems like it would be incredibly useful if you knew exactly when you were at your highest functioning. And I'm just thinking about my own performances. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's by chance that what I would identify as the common thread behind my best performances is optimism. Just this Hmm. unfailing belief that like, I'm going to kill this today. I'm going to be great today. My best runs, you know, I I had a insane like three month run in magic where I was just winning everything. I felt like I could not lose. It felt impossible for me to lose. Like it just was never going to happen. And it's interesting that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you have that level of belief. And, And that for me more than anything is the signaler of me being at my peak performance is just a belief in myself. Yeah, I I think the cognition part of it is absolutely a piece. We know that our thoughts cause whatever emotion it is we're experiencing. So like in terms of you asking if we can do this deliberately, yeah, we can almost backtrack. If we know what we feel like when we're at our best for whatever it is we're doing, we can plant thoughts in our head to get us there. So I, I think listening to yours over months is really interesting. So you're probably doing something very similar each time you sat down for a new match of magic. And I imagine if you had to think about what it's like when you sit down for magic and you don't feel like you're ready to perform at your best, like that's a different set of emotions or like a different set of where your brain is focused. Yeah. I I think that's a hundred percent accurate. Like for me, I think about it like for when I lift weights so very concrete performance. Let's say I'm just doing like a deadlift. So I'm doing a heavy deadlift. It's on the floor, the bar set. I know that if I'm not performing at my best, I'm thinking things about how heavy it looks or I'm feeling like a little tired or not really into it. Or I notice that if I'm paying attention to the TVs at the gym, that my mind isn't focused right. Whereas when it's easy, and I don't hesitate and I have some of my best lifts or maybe even this is probably what I'm experiencing when I set personal bests. I know that I feel a little bit agitated and it's almost like a, a, a battle in my head between me and this bar on the ground and like we're about to fight. And so I know if I've, it's, I'm not like raged, like I'm not ready to like slam the bar and like get in a fight with it. But I'm a little annoyed, a little agitated. And for me, lifting heavy stuff, I need to be a little agitated to be at my best. That's really interesting. I'm trying to get myself in the mindset of when I was a heavyweight lifter, uh, which is so long ago. I (laughs) I did have my high school bench press record. So I I was definitely like into heavy lifting for sure. Mm -hmm. And this is going back now. 19 years couple, almost. A couple of years. Yeah, a few <laughs> decades. So it's, it's very hard for me to summon that mindset and remember how I uh, was internalizing the workout performance. But I bet it had some similarity to what you're talking about. And I know I can still talk about what it's like when I have off days at lifting mm-hmm. because I, I do still lift now and it's it's not at the same level I once was. But you know, it, it's just more for trying to stay in some degree of shape and, and keep my athletic performance well-rounded. But when I'm doing poorly and I, I don't really bring it to a workout, I find points of annoyance in the weirdest place. Like I'm annoyed that I have to reset something on the equipment or change the incline of the bench. And I'm annoyed when I have like Bowflex adjustable dumbbells and I'm annoyed when they don't uh, appropriately change and they like catch in the the mechanism and I can't pick them up right away. So all these little things become like such a big deal to me in the times where I'm not at my best. Uh, And it's probably me creating barriers to my own performance. Like I've already told myself I don't have it today and now all these other things are going wrong. So why do I even bother and I can just give up and not lift today? Yep. That's it. That's definitely what we're talking about. And it's interesting because it's different person to person. It's different performance to performance. 
I think about it, it's really funny when you see these. Well, funny for me, I guess. Uh, when you see like these hype up circles before certain athletic endeavors, mm-hmm. what that's doing is it is assuming that every single person on that team performs at the their way. best. Yeah, yeah. They, they perform at their best when they're super hyped up. Like I had a goalie when I played lacrosse who was the opposite. Like he was completely relaxed in like an almost Zen-esque state when he was clicking and at his best. And if I were to like go up to him and slam my helmet against him and like shake his shoulders, I was probably not setting him up for success because his, his best, his zone of optimal functioning for lacrosse was at a way lower energy level than mine. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. I'd, I'd never considered that until this moment because I, I was a hype up person. Like I was jumping mm-hmm. up and down and dancing and, you know, smashing helmets with my teammates before we went out. And that, that worked for me. But I can remember in doing that, people who just didn't have the same response. And I, I'm talking about a much younger me, obviously. So I think I'm lacking a lot of understanding and emotional maturity at that time. <laughs> and I, I think I'm, I remember being frustrated. Like, don't these people care? Why, why can't they get hype for this game? You know, this matters. We need to win. It's, it's not that they didn't care. It's just that they're not built the same way I was. And they didn't do the jump around hype up thing. They, you know, found their center, found their focus. And they had their own ways of preparing, essentially, which I ignored, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I see it with esports teams. Like some people really want to talk up until like the moment before a match. Uh, mm-hmm. Other players have earbuds in and they're listening to whatever music it is that like gets them in the right spot. I think we see it in Magic too. Like there's definitely players yeah. that walk around with headphones and the successful ones that do it, you have to imagine whatever they're listening to, they've found gets them in the right zone for whatever it is they're like for sitting down and playing magic. Right. Yeah. And I, I certainly know players like that. I know players who like to read between every round. Hmm. They just like to be alone with their book, you know, use that to kind of focus them from round to round. Uh, I know people who want to talk about their last round and their last match and, and that's how they prepare. And all, all of these players, you know, successful players, they all have their own ways of approaching this kind of, preparation stage and getting to their optimal function. Do you know, I read a, a really interesting thing about uh, hype up music the other day. I don't, I don't think we talked about it here and I don't have a source for it. It's just something I came across. So, you know, I, I wouldn't put hard faith in this little tidbit, but I found it interesting. And I, I think it applies to me. Someone mentioned something to the effect of that for people of my age who grew up playing lots of video games mm. in the 8-bit era chiptune music, which is music that is, you know, simulating kind of 80s, 90s era Mm -hmm. video games was incredibly effective at getting people into the flow state because you spent your youth gaming and, you know, anyone who grew up on the nest remembers like hard sections of Ninja Gaiden or Mega Man and having to battle through them. (laughs) And with the 8-bit music pumping in the background and you had to reach a flow state to be able to succeed at those games. And I don't know if this was just hypothesis or if there was actual study done. I I wish I had the information in front of me, but it kind of resonated with me. I was like, yeah, I think that's kind of true because that is something I do sometimes. I put on, there's a great site called Rainwave, which is just like a bunch of classic 8-bit music and some newer video game soundtracks as well. And I often put that on in the background when I'm doing work. I like it because it doesn't distract me. There's no vocals. And I do feel like it gets me in the zone quite often. That's really interesting. I got to try it. I have like the, all the Mega Man boss music just like blaring in my head now. Like, Yeah, yeah. Snake Man. Snake Man's the yeah. best Mega Man song ever. It's very good. And it like, as soon as the door shuts behind you, it just like kicks the music up like 10, 10 notches and just- Yeah, yeah. It gets intense right away. So, you know, try that out if you're looking for ways to, <laughs> to hit your optimal performance state. Maybe it's 8-bit music that you've been missing this whole time. Yeah. I want to look into that. That's really cool. Uh, I don't know about that research, but I do know that this is supported by research because really what we're talking about is figuring out whatever emotion works for you for a given performance and figuring out how to get yourself there. And they call this emotional priming. And so, if you think about if you've ever painted a wall, you like you put the primer down first before you put sure. paint. It's the same idea. It's just like putting down that prime coat like in our brain, like getting us ready to perform. And 
like just to put numbers to it, like the, the studies they've looked at was like a big meta analysis, looking at tons of studies of elite performers that they were able to figure out what their like emotional cocktail was that got them in the right zone and then see how they performed. And so the stats are a little loose here because I'm taking like inner group to apply to one person. So statistics people listening, I apologize. But for the sake of easy math, the stats come down to, let's say that you were doing sit-ups. If you didn't prime yourself, you could do like a hundred. If, if before sitting down to do sit-ups, if you could get yourself in the right emotional state for whatever it is that makes you the best at doing sit-ups for you, you could see like somewhere between 10 and 20 more sit-ups. That's, that's a huge improvement rate. 10 to 20% is tremendous. Yeah. It, so it was like half a standard deviation in the literature for anyone who knows what that means. But, but yeah, like very, very loosely, it's like 17-ish sit-ups if, if we're using some loose math. But even if it's two, like let's, let's just take the, the crazy math out of it. Imagine like, all right, 100 sit-ups, personal best, and that's like without priming. And then we just had a conversation, figured out, all right, when I'm at my best doing sit-ups, this is how I feel. And then you got yourself into that. And then you did sit-ups. Even if you got two more out of just changing how you're thinking, that's freaking cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, so the task is now, how do we get to our prime state? What, I mean, what's 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 the work that has to be done to be able to identify it? Yeah, it's a lot of self-reflection. So it'd be pretty exhaustive to do this for everything you do in life. But if you think about mm -hmm. the performances that matter, so whatever it is you're currently competing in, or if there's a bunch of things, just take some time and think about the last time you were at or near your best. What were you feeling emotionally? Like, where was your mental focus? And write like three to five descriptors for each and do the same thing for when you felt like a little too amped up, like maybe you brought too much energy to something or you didn't bring quite enough. And that'll give you a good vocab for having like markers for when you're either not enough energy the right amount of energy or too much. And just think about what you can be doing before a performance to get more of that just enough energy. I mentioned earlier that when I'm agitated doing deadlifts, it's easier for me to lift it off the ground. And so when I walk up to the bar and I get my feet in the proper positioning, like I just like look at the bar and in my mind, like I tell myself that I'm unshakable. And so for me, I've trained myself over the years that when I say I'm unshakable to myself, it just means like that bar is not going to beat me. And it pisses me off a little bit that the bar would think it could. And then I feel a little bit agitated and I lift it off the ground. Okay. <laughs> let, let me put you on the spot now. I'm, sure. I'm going to challenge you. Okay. Can you think of some, I guess, some of your emotional signals for when you're about to perform really well at podcasting? Can you think of times where you've you've had your best performance on this show and, and what your mental state was like going into that episode? Yeah, I'm cheating a little bit because I think it's very similar to when I'm presenting. Okay. I know that I perform best as a deliverer of knowledge. Let's just make it nice and broad. When I am more playful, conversational to some sense, and just curious even about the learning that I'm trying to facilitate. And when I'm not that, it means like, I think I'm just more rigid. Uh, I'm, I'm more dispensing rather than having a conversation. And my mind, I think, is more focused on what I need to say rather than just letting it happen. Yeah, I, I can totally buy that now having having done a bunch of this. I mean, if I were to identify my kind of optimal emotional state for podcasting, it's calm confidence. Two words mm. sum it up. I, I mm -hmm. need to I need to be calm, I need to be comfortable, and I need to be confident in what I'm talking about. 
Hmm. And the confidence too doesn't necessarily have to be confidence about the topic because often I'm put in situations, especially in doing this cast, where I'm, I'm talking about something that I am not <laughs> anywhere near an expert in. And in, in fact, we're talking about things I'm learning about for the first time right now. Uh-huh. Um, so, so my confidence has to come from a place of like, okay, I will confidently listen to what Jonathan is presenting, do my best to understand it, draw on my own experiences, and I'm comfortable doing that. So it's a different kind of confidence. It's more confidence in my ability to extrapolate what you're presenting. And that's what leads to me being able to perform on this podcast and being able to be a good uh, and effective host and conveyor of information. And I think that's fascinating because it took me so long to get that. There's like this level of nervousness to broadcasting that's very hard to shake when you first start doing it. You mm-hmm. feel like you have to be formal and I'm like I'm sitting up straight in my chair and I'm <laughs> very focused on the distance from the microphone and and how I'm projecting my voice. And now it's just like, okay, I have to have confidence in myself. I have to be who I am and I have to let that shine through in my podcasting. And that's what's going to ultimately lead to a good episode. Yeah, uh, And that learning process was challenging. It, it was. It took me a long time to really figure that out. Well, I, I mentioned it last episode with authenticity bit and and how when I first started working with the military, how I was a lot more of what, what you just described, like the the rigid or, or like there was a certain mold that I had to fit in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I think that accelerated for me. And then like the initial like, oh, there's a microphone in front of me and I'm not actually talking to a person. I had to get past that. But I think even just in this might shock everyone, but like Brian and I talked before we start recording and we like get a sense for what we're talking about. We do uh, actually prepare. I know it's unbelievable. Yeah. But, but even in the, in the preparation, like we were talking earlier and it's just Brian remarked like, well, like you're a podcaster now just cause like I, I, I have concerns still about the stuff I'm conveying or like how I've prepped for it. But when it comes down to it, I realize like, Hey, I know this stuff and seemingly Brian and I can talk to each other for at least an hour each week and mm-hmm. and it turns into information and like whatever comes out, it'll be fine. And if we really mess up, we have a very good audio editor. Yeah. It's always <laughs> nice to have in your back pocket, right? Connor is definitely a key in my uh, calm confidence that I know he'll, <laughs> he'll take care of all the times I make myself sound like an idiot. So that's, that's always right. good. Okay. So uh, anything else you want to say about this kind of emotional priming and setting ourselves up for these positive emotional states? No, I think for now, that's a good intro to it. I could talk about it for for days, but- Yeah, maybe I, if there's a lot of response to it, we'll, we'll circle back around to a full episode and, mm-hmm. and get a little bit more in depth about uh, our processes for doing this and some, some tips for achieving it as well. So definitely holler at us either over on Twitter or over in our Patreon's Discord if, if you're really interested in the topic. Yeah, please. Okay, so I, I think there's one more point you want to talk about, correct? Yeah, um, this one- it's another quick hit, but I think it's fascinating. Um, we haven't talked about imagery much, I don't think. No, I don't Over. think so. Okay, so imagery, real quickly, like our brain thinks in pictures. Uh, it does it all the time. It is a technique you can leverage for performance to great benefit. The reason why is like when we when we think of an image, it it our brain fires the same electrical signals throughout our body. And and so a study that demonstrated this quite well is they took a look at uh, skiers and they hooked them up to some biofeedback that measured the electrical firing in your body. And what they found is they did that and then had the same skiers sit down and imagine going through the same run. And they found that while it was like to a slightly lesser degree, because you're not actually like making a like a hard right cut or anything, the brain had similar activity to as if they were actually going down the hill. Hmm. Well, there's so much to unpack from that, right? <laughs> because it's like our imagined experiences any less real? They're they're all kind of like neurons firing and electrical impulses. And mm-hmm. you know, this is funny too, because I just previously talked about my really big magic heater where I felt unbeatable. Mm-hmm. The visualization of me winning magic matches was something that I also practiced very hard during that time. And it mm-hmm. wasn't like it wasn't forced. Sometimes now 
when I when I'm not in the same type of heater, it feels a little bit more forced. Then though, I just believed I was going to win and I visualized what that looked like and basically was experiencing it before it happened in a lot of instances. Yeah. Um, which, you know, you can say a lot about staying in the moment and maybe that having negative consequences in some instances, but uh, I, I found it mostly a positive thing. It really helped reinforce the belief that I would find the way to win in that instance. Mm-hmm. And maybe like to think to what we were talking about earlier, you, when you're winning magic, might be the like version of you that's in the right emotional or like the right level of energy to play good magic. And so mm-hmm. like in, in imagining it, maybe you were putting yourself there. Yeah, I can totally buy that. I, I mean, what's the, is that kind of how the practical application of this works? It's about positive visualization and, or, or is it more like a practice tool? I mean, if we're trying to improve at basketball, basketball is something I've talked a lot about uh, mm-hmm. on the cast and, and my crafting my shot a little bit. Uh, is this to say that I would benefit from just thinking about shooting jump shots? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I'm lying in bed at night and it's probably mm-hmm. capable of making me a better basketball player? It is. It wow. sounds it sounds crazy. Like it's not going to replace actual going to the gym and shooting jump shots. Like this is not me saying, yeah, use your brain. It's like it's better than physically working out. Um, but it's a cool augment to it because realistically, like how many hours a day can you go to the gym and shoot jump shots? Right. Right. And this is just kind of expanding your reach into times you have practice available to you. Again, calling back to magic, I, I play games of magic in my head all the mm-hmm. time. And I, I think about various scenarios and like I'll just compose a board state out of nowhere and I think my way through it. Or I, I sometimes talk about how things feel like magic cards to me. Like I don't I don't know how to ex- how to describe it, but sometimes I'll like parallel park my car and it feels like I just lightning bolted a creature with three toughness. This is, this is going to completely fly over the heads of anyone who doesn't <laughs> play magic. Um, but magic players know what I'm talking about right now. And it, it's weird. There's just like this feel and this, uh, this fit to the action and I'm able to apply it across other phases of my life. And I, I think maybe that's hitting on some of this imagery stuff as well, if I'm understanding mm-hmm. it correctly. Yeah. Like I use it to speak broadly. I- I tend to play combo decks, which are like decks that assemble a couple key moving pieces and do degenerate things. And so I was recently playing a combo deck that had a couple like infinite loops in it. And there were certain set ones. And so I definitely imagined like explaining the loop or the like, if I was at this game state, what were the actions I needed to take to get to one of these winning board states? Like I definitely played that out in my head because it was a predetermined set of variables that I knew I needed to get to. And there's only a certain amount of ways to get it. Yeah. It it seems incredibly useful, especially in uh, mental games. I mean, think about chess. You can certainly set up games of chess and I'm sure the great chess players are basically just living this life where they are playing chess in their heads all all the time they do it like there are competitions where grandmasters take on like mental chess yeah or like just play eight ten people at once like they can't sure they can rapidly assess a board state but part of that is because they are thinking ahead of time like what the next moves are going to be and like they've seen these patterns over and over and over again and i imagine they do that even without a board in front of them yeah. Yeah. I have to believe so. You think this is the practical application you've given here? Just like thinking through the task you're trying to get better about using the imagery of the action and, uh, you know, squeezing a few more extra practice hours into your day. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, we can file this in the docket of episodes we need to have. Um, cause there's so much that goes into imagery, but yeah, the, I just think the cool takeaway from it is our brain sends similar signals when we're imagining an experience as when we're actually doing it. And that just opens up all sorts of possibilities in terms of practice. Can I tell you that when I started learning snowboarding for like the first month when I started snowboarding regularly, like obviously I tried it, I was like, okay, I think this is for me. And then Mm -hmm. I started going basically every weekend. But in that first like month or two, I would lay down to go to bed at night and would often like flail my arms around because I would start having the experience of going down the hill on my snowboard while I was trying to sleep. Um, 
because I, I was thinking about it. And I wanted to improve and uh, my brain tricked me into actually believing I was sliding down a mountainside, even though I was lying in my bed. Our brains are crazy powerful. Man. Yeah. They can do so much stuff. This is really common in the ski and snowboard world. Uh, like I did some work as part of a, a placement in grad school, working with the future elite Olympians of, of ski and snowboard. And so their life was that. And they went to school for some portion of the day and they had their own runs on the mountains, but like you can only do that so much. And they leveraged imagery a ton to get like additional Mm -hmm. reps of like a slalom course, or if they were more in freestyle half pipe, anything like that, or like the, the high jump, like all those things. Like when you, if you watch the Olympics next time it's on, I don't remember which is the, the winter year, but like the, the skiers who do like the really, really, really big jump, Right. Like if you watch them beforehand, they're standing at the top and you see them like move their arms up and down and left and right. Like, and they often have their eyes closed. Like they are imagining what they need to do to like twist and turn their body in the air before they start skiing. Right. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's a huge part of the preparation in those kind of sports is, is visualizing. And you know, another one, uh, a tip I got very early on in my development as a golfer was never just hit balls on a driving mm-hmm. range. Mm-hmm. Always, always, always visualize shots you were attempting to make on a driving range. Otherwise, you're basically doing nothing. Yep. You, you may as well not even go to the driving range if you're not attempting to make a shot with every ball you strike. Uh, so same type of thing. The brain is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I enjoyed this episode a lot. I, I think there were so many cool takeaways. And like you said, I feel like we've also dredged up full topics for future episodes. Uh, So I already mentioned it. I encourage you, if there's something you want to hear more about, we're always down to listen to our listeners and and hear what they're looking for. And we're happy to explore whatever you guys want to hear more about when we come back to play some more Head Games. 